0: Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, aka Triumvir Clio. Hello, all. This week's episode is probably what you think of when you think of Greek mythology. Hesiod's Theogony, the ancient Greek mythology book of Genesis, (laughs) a whole bunch of begats. You'll recall from our last myth episode that we only know a little about Hesiod. The best estimate is that the Theogony was written around 700 BCE. While the entire poem has been attributed to Hesiod, it's possible that what we have contains edits and additions by later ancient poets. While it isn't the most exciting thing to read, it does lay the foundation for a lot of later writers. And because it isn't the most exciting thing to read, I'm going to try to intersperse some analysis throughout the summary instead of doing these two things as separate sections. I'm using the M.L. West translation from 1966. This is the same translator that I used for Works and Days. It's fine. I used to own a translation that I like better, but I must have gotten rid of it because it was a single text whereas my M.L. West copy has both Theogony and Works and Days. As usual, whatever you can get your hands on will suffice. It's available for free online on multiple websites. Uh, the first section of the Theogony is devoted to the Muses. As, we have, as we've seen in the Iliad and Works and Days, there is a traditional invocation of calling on the muses to sing through the writer. Hesiod spends a bit of time speaking of himself in the third person, explaining how the muses taught him his art. He also says that he could make up some stories, but he won't. He will tell the truth. And the truth he will tell us is about those who are immortal, because the muses told him that that's where he, what he's supposed to do. And since it's the muses who have instructed him to do this, that's where he starts even though that's not really the beginning. I suppose you could say that he starts with Do-Re-Mi instead of A-B-C? No? Does that joke actually work? Anyway, Zeus spent nine nights with memory, and nine nights means nine children. Daughters, to be exact. Clio, Euterpe, Thalia, Melpomene, Terpsichore, Arato, Polyhymnia, Urania, and Calliope, to be precise. And as far as I'm concerned, of course, you only need to remember Clio, the muse of history. You will note that Hesiod does not describe each muse as being responsible for a specific art. That seems to have developed later. I think it's interesting to note that they are women, and memory is a woman. If we consider that mythology began with an oral tradition, this makes sense. We know that in many cultures, women were the holders of traditional stories. So even though this written source comes from a man, the cultural source maintains the role of women in holding knowledge and, quite literally, memory. And now that he's introduced the muses, Hesiod can tell the stories that they have given him. And we'll pick up there after a short break. See it now goes back to the very beginning. It's a very good place to start, even though he doesn't actually start there. In the beginning, there was chaos. That's the translation you'll usually see. West, however, chooses to translate this as chasm, and his explanation for this choice does make sense. When we think of chaos, we think of disorder, but that's not quite right. There wasn't disorder in the beginning, there was nothing, a void, a chasm. And out of this void came Gaia, the earth. And this is another interesting thing to note. Gaia is the first being to arise out of the void, and Gaia is female. The world and the gods start with a woman, which does make sense. Birth, new life, requires a mother, and so the first being is the mother of all. But while Gaia is the first being to come out of the void, she is not the only. Next comes Tartarus, the underworld, and then Eros, described uh, by West as the dissolver of flesh, which is a somewhat disgusting way to look and describe that melting feeling of falling in love, or at least lust. Eros is the god of desire, not love. And then comes Erebus, darkness, and Nyx, night. And from Erebus and Nyx are born Ether, bright air, and Himera, day. Meanwhile, Gaia gives birth to Uranos, the sky. That one would be Parthenogenesis. And while she's at it, Gaia gives birth to Urea, the mountains, and Pontus, the sea. Also through Parthenogenesis. Now, to make things confusing, Gaia and Uranus get together and get busy and don't think too hard about their relationship. Just think of them as the earth and the sky. And their relationship led to the birth of the Titans Oceanus, Koios, Krios, Hyperion, Yapetos, Thea, Rhea, Themis, Memory, Phoebe, Tethys, and Kronos, and the three Cyclops, Brontes, Steropes, and Argus, or Thunderer, Lightner, and Whitebolt. You're probably familiar with the Cyclops from the Odyssey. Polyphemus and his pals are different. Yes, they all have one eye, but that's about all they have in common. These OG Cyclops will forge Zeus's thunderbolt. But there's more. The union of Gaia and Uranus also result in the birth of Katos, Briarios, and Giges. The Hecatonchires, or the Hundred-Handed Ones. They're giants with 100 arms and 50 heads and boundless strength. The Titans are cool, but the Cyclops and Hecatonchires. Why is it that the relationship between Gaia and Uranus produced both god and gods and monsters? Something to think about. Uranus loathed the Cyclops and Hecatonchires, so he hid them in a cavern in the earth. And who is the earth? Gaia. So basically. Uranus tries to push them all back inside of their mother, which is not comfortable to say the least. But guy is good at creating things, so she makes a new element called adamantium. No, wait, just adamant. And she uses the strongest of metals to make a sickle. And she turns to the Titans and asks which of them is going to punish Uranus for the way that he has treated her. And Cronos not only raises his hand, he boasts about how he's not scared of, their, of his father. Gaia shows him a good hiding place and they wait. That night, Uranos comes to sleep with Gaia again, and Kronos jumps out and uses the sickle to castrate Uranos. Then Kronos threw, throws Ur- Uranos' genitals into the sea and, and his blood splatters over the earth. From those blood drops are born the Erinyes or Furies, who you remember from the Oristia, and the Gigantes, or Giants, and the Meliae or Tree Nymphs. The genitals turn to foam, and Aphrodite is born out of that foam. We generally consider Aphrodite to be an Olympian, but we see here that her birth is separate. She is older, and from what we can tell, worship of her um, or of deities linked to her may predate the worship of the rest of the Olympian Parthenon, um, uh, pantheon. Pardon me. And she was born of a mixing of the sky and the sea, unlike most other gods who are born from some relationship between a sky god and an an earth goddess. She is neither Titan nor Olympian, but she is all goddess. The back's the oldest of the old gods. After telling the story of Guy and Oranos, Hesiod circles back to describe the children of Nyx, or Night. She bears doom, fate, death, sleep, and dreams, and then blame and misery and Hesperides And the Furies, not to be confused with the Arignes, even though they seem to fill exactly the same role in the pantheon. And retribution, deceit, intimacy, old age, and strife. And for those of you who want that list with their Greek names, Moros, the more. Moirai, Thanatos, Hypnos, Oneroi, Momos, Oasis, the Hesperides, that one's obvious, Care and the Cares, Nemesis, Apate, Philotis, Geras, and Eris. And Eris, Strife, has a bunch of kids too toil, neglect, starvation, pain, battles, combat, slaughter, quarrels, lies, pretenses, arguments, disorders, disaster, and oaths or in Greek, ponos, hismeni, the nikei, the phonoi, Lethi, makai, pseudologos, amphologia, limos, and dractasia, ate, dysmonia, the algia, and horkos. And we can see the relationship between these concepts and actions, how one can arise from the other. The oath thing does stand out. There's nothing inherently wrong with an oath, right? But if you break your oath... Think about what's happening in our reading of the Iliad, right? That all started because of an oath. So we can see how strife or eras is related to horcos or oaths. Hesiod then goes back up the family tree to Pontus, the sea. Pontus fathers Nereus, also known as the old man of the sea. Then Pontus joins Gaia to father Thalmus, Forcus, uh, Eurybia, and Keto. Nereus joins with Doris, one of Oceanus's daughters, and that reunion. That union results in the fifty nereids. Are you ready? Do you think I can do it in one breath? We'll see. Protho, Eucrati, Amphitrite, Eudora, Thetas, Galini, Glauke uh, Chemothiae, Spio, Thalia, Pasithiae, Erado, Eunis, Melite Eulemoni, Agawe, Dato, Proto, Feroza, Dynamini, Necea, Actia, Protomidae, Doris, Panopi, Galatea, Hypothoea, Hepanoe, Chimidosi, Chematalege, Chemo, Ainoe, Helamidi, Glaconomy, Pontoporea, Leagora, yuagora Laumida, Palinoe, Atanoe, Lucianasa, Urani, Pasmathi, Menipe, Nesso, Eupompe, Pronowe, and Nemertes. And I totally t- had to take more than one breath in that. Really, the only one that you need to remember for our reading right now is Thetis, who is Achilles' mom. That's not mentioned by Hesiod, but we know that from the Iliad, obviously. Thalmis marries Electra, another of Oceanus's daughters. Their children are Iris and the harpies, Aiello and Acapetes. Iris is the rainbow messenger goddess, but her sisters are part beautiful woman and part bird. Um, and harpies, harping... You can guess what they do in mythology. Forcus and Keto, yes, brother and sister, are parents to the Gray Eye. You remember the three old women in Disney's Her- Her- um, Hercules? And yes, I know the movie. In in that movie, they're conflated with the Fates, but that's basically what the Gray Eye look like: old women who share a tooth and an eye and gray-haired. The the old ones. And Forcus and Keto are also parents to the Gorgons, the immortals Stheno and Uriale, and the mortal Medusa. And Hesiod takes a moment to remind us that Medusa has her head cut off by Perseus. But from Medusa's head is born Creseor and Pegasus. And Creseor joins with Caleroe, another of Oceanus's daughters, and uh, she gives birth to Gerioneus, who appears in the tale of the labors of Heracles. Hesiod takes a slight diversion on that part of the story of Heracles, but the full story is for another day. Back to Keto. She also gives birth to Echidna, half nymph, half monstrous serpents. Echidna's confined underground because that's how monsters are handled in Hesiod's telling, by stuffing them back into the earth. Echidna, in a relationship with Typhon, gives birth to Orthos, a dog for Gerianos, um Cerberus, a dog for Hades, the Hydra, whom Heracles slew with some help from Iaulus and Athena, and Chimera, the combination of a lion, a goat, and a serpent, who was killed by Bellerophon. And now things get confusing because she surrendered to Orthus and gave birth to the Sphinx and the Nemean lion, but it isn't exactly clear who she is. So this could be Keto or it could be Echidna or maybe Hydra, but Hesiod isn't, but Hesiod is clear that the Sphinx spends her time killing Cadmus' people and the Nemean lion was so named because it spent its time killing the people around Nemea, much to the delight of Hera, Hera, until Heracles kills it. The youngest child of Keto and Forcus is the serpent that guards the golden apples, which is another part of the labors of Heracles. So why Hesiod isn't just telling that story? Anyway, Hesiod then moves on to the children of the Titans. Tethys bore to Oceanus the rivers. Nile, Alpheus, Eridanus, Stremon, Meander, Danube, Phasis, Rhesus, Achilles, uh, Nessus, Rhodius, Halicomen, uh, Heptoporus, Granicus, Esopus, Simois, Penius, Hermus, Caiocus, Sangarius, Leto, Parthenius, Eunus, uh, Rescus, and Scamander and a few of those should sound familiar to you. Nile, Danube, um, and depending on where you live, you might recognize some of the others. Scamander comes up in the Iliad. Um, they also have a bunch of nymphs. nymphs. Patho, Admeti, Vianthi, Electra, Doris, Primno, Urania, Hippoclymenae, Rhodia, Caleroe, Zuxo, Clydia, Idea, Pasithoe, Pluxara, Galaxara, Dione, Malabasis, Thoe, Polydora. Carcaeus, Pluto, Perseus, Janiera, Acostes, anthe Petrea, Menestho, Europa, Metis, Eurynome, Telesto, Criseus, Asia, Calypso, Eudora, Tyche, Amphiro, Okiroi, and Styx. Um, ones that you'll want to uh, remember for later are Metis and um, Calypso and We'll talk about sticks briefly soon. Um, there are also 3,000 Oceanids. Are you ready? No, just kidding. For once, Hesiod doesn't list all of their names. Thea and Hyperion are parents to Helios, the sun, Selene, the moon, and Eos, the dawn. Creos and Eurbea have Astrios, Pallas, and Perseus. Astrios and Eos are parents to the winds, Zephros, Boreos, Natos, and Euras, and the morning star and the rest of the stars. Styx and Pallas are parents to Zelos, Aspiration, Nike, Victory, Bia, Power, and Kratos' Strength, and these children sit besi- beside Zeus for their mother, Styx, joined the Olympians in their fight against the Titans, a story that Hesiod hasn't gotten to yet. Phoebe and Koyos become parents to Leto and Asteria, and marries Perseus and gives birth to Hecate, another ancient goddess who is lifted up by Zeus and the Olympians, and Hesiod speaks for an extended section about Hecate and the worship of Hecate, showing just how important this goddess of witchcraft has remained um, by the time of Hesiod, even though what we will see in the next episode is what happens that leads to the Olympian gods who are currently being worshipped. But I'm going to take a brief break here and come back to wrap up today's episode. Initially, I was going to do the entire Theogony as a single episode, but that's going to take way too long when we have only just now reached the point where the birth of the Olympian gods is described. Um, So since I'm trying to keep episodes to around 15 to 20 minutes, this is a good place for us to stop. Um, Next Friday, we will pick up at this point and finish Hesiod's Theogony.